Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to the show. Uh, Today, we are going to have a bonus episode for all of you, and I'm really excited about it. And if you've signed up for uh, the newsletter at financialresidency.com, you probably know by now that Tim Baker and I of Your Financial Pharmacist, we just launched a brand new podcast called Money Care Specialists. And you can hear that in any player that you're listening to, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to me right now, you can go and subscribe to that show, Money Care Specialists. What we do on the show is we essentially do on-air financial case studies of real-life healthcare professionals. We don't discriminate between specialties, and that's kind of one of the reasons why I really like it. We cover finances of physicians, pharmacists, veterinarians, dentists, you name it. And each of these financial assessments is bite-sized, and maybe we go you know, around 30 minutes, and to help you follow along, with each show, we've put together these one-pagers um, that you can download directly from the Money Care Specialist Facebook group. So make sure you join that. Download the one-pagers if you'd like to follow along. So let's jump right in and hear today's bonus episode of Money Care Specialists. And we're going to be talking about Ted and his fiance Jenny. Welcome to the Money Care Specialist Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Baker. And I'm Ryan Inman. Today, our case study is going to be all about Ted and Ginny. So Ted is a community pharmacist at a well-known retail pharmacy, and Ginny, his fiance, is actually finished in nursing school. So Ted, he's going to be our focus today, and we're really going to look at him as if he's a single case. We don't have a lot of Ginny's data, so we're going to look at Ted and his case. So Ted is age 29. He currently is single, though he's engaged, so he files his taxes single and just a little bit about Ted's living situation. So he actually went to school in Philadelphia, high cost of living area, um, at the University of Sciences where he got his farm B. He actually took a job in Austin, Texas, where he works for, like I said, a well-known pharmacy chain. Currently has his fiance, Jenny, who lives with him and is finishing nursing school. Their finances are still separate. So outside of a joint savings and checking account for things like rent and utilities, everything is separate. They don't have kids. And they both like to travel and see state parks around the country. So when we sit down and ask Ted what his goals are, basically the big thing that he says is, hey, overwhelm with loans. So he wants to pay those off as efficiently as possible. And that's really the number one thing. His current balance is 205000 at 6.9% interest, all federal. And he's really unsure if refinancing is really appropriate for him. So he's heard a lot about that process and he's just not sure of it. He wants to get engaged to Ginny in the next year or so. So the plan is to buy a ring soon and get married in the next two or three years. So he wants a small wedding, really doesn't want to spend a whole lot of money on that front. And he'd like to purchase a home in the next three to five years back in the Philadelphia area where he's from. And he also has Arcadia and Joshua Tree National Park as targets for him him and Jenny to visit in the next two years. He wants to make sure he sets aside money for those trips. And he wants to retire at a, quote, decent age, but really unsure what that looks like or even how to go about it. I think it's funny. Uh, Ted basically says, I, I don't want to spend a lot on a wedding and we can't talk to Jenny, but I'm curious if Jenny says, hey, I uh, 
I, I disagree, Ted. Yeah, but isn't that important though, Ryan? Because like we talk about this is like, it's so important to have, you know, if you're working with a household. So obviously if Ted's a client and we're building what their wealthy life is, we want to make sure that we have Jitty's voice in the room. And this happens often with clients is where I'll begin working with one as they're single and then they get married and we start working with both. But sometimes you see that shift, but it's important to get both of those voices in the room for sure. Absolutely. I think it's comical because I bet you we see the exact opposite. <laughs> so as we always mention in our Facebook group, Money Care Specialist community. You can go download this one pager and then follow along with us because we are always at the beginning of the shows, we're going to give you some technical detail and background. So I'm going to jump into the financial health assessment for Ted. So his current income is about $125,000 a year with very little potential for bonus. And he happens to be paid all W-2, which means his take-home pay is about $7,000 a month. And so we're going to dive into his expenses and his fixed expenses are $3,500, which is about 50%. Variable, which is at $1,500, which we're looking you know, pretty much at, at 20% here. And then his savings is the remainder. And the way that Ted broke it out for us was that he's trying to put $300 to his emergency fund. He puts $300 in his Roth IRA. And then the extra 300 that he's got left over really goes unallocated. He kind of just does what he wants with it and doesn't really know where it goes. He currently banks at a brick and mortar place that his parents also use. And sometimes they send him or transfer him some money to make life a little bit easier for him. Bank of mom and dad, right? Pretty nice. Yeah. I mean, is the brick and mortar called bank of mom and dad? Because <laughs> could be, yeah. I need to set that up. Yeah. My mom's going to listen and be like, no, no, no. <laughs> he's got about 8000 in his checking, 5000 in his savings. His student debt, so he's got just over 200000 205000 as as it sits here. And it's all federal, consolidated, weighted average 6.9%. And it's a makeup of Stafford, Fell Loans, Perkins Loans. And he pays about 900 a month that we allocated in his fixed expense there. But he pays about 900 He's on the repay repayment plan. He doesn't have any auto debt, but he has about 5000 of credit card debt. And he told us that it's at 21.99% that he's paying the minimum on. His investments are the Roth IRA that he's contributing a few hundred dollars a month to. And he told us that he actually puts in the total market index fund. Ted also has a 401k. His employer matches 3%. So he contributes that 3%. And he guesses, kind of thinks it's in target date funds, but it was set up a while ago. He doesn't really remember. For his insurance, he doesn't have short-term disability, but he does have long-term disability. 60% of his pay, own occupation through age 65, and it's a 180-day elimination period. He also has $100,000 worth of term plus one times his annual income, which is 125000 through his employer. And he does not have any estate plan put together. So that kind of rounds out our friend Ted here from his financial assessment, his goals, and kind of what his life really looks like. And Tim, let's just jump right in and say, what are some of the things that you see? I've got a couple in my head as I read through this case study here, but what are some of the major issues you see with Ted? I think the big thing that he listed on his goals, and obviously, you know, we want to be cognizant of that is, is obviously the student loan debt and making sure that we're, we're moving in the right direction there. But I think the thing that does jump out at me is the consumer debt, you know, the credit card debt at 20, 22% that he's paying the minimum on. You're getting killed in interest rates and in interest fees every month. So I think obviously, you know, having a plan in place and, and kind of deadlines and milestones to get through that as quickly as possible is, I think, going to be key. You know, if you have $5,000 in savings, it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be doing that and not applying more to the credit card debt. Now, to speak to the student loan situation, 
I think since he works in community pharmacists for a well-known chain that is a for-profit, so the PSLF is going to be off the table. So I would probably look at having either sitting down with Ted or having him go gather quotes from you know some student loan refinance companies that we like and see if he can beat the 6.9% interest rate that he's currently paying with the federal loans and see how he can fit that in with his budget. So 205000 at a 10-year, you're probably going to be paying around $2,000 a month You know, if you go with a 10-year. Um, if we stretch that out to a 12 or a 15-year, it might be a little bit better. But again, if his number one goal is to pay those off as efficiently as possible, that would probably be the path that I would look at is, hey, can we beat the 6.9% and can we get a little bit of better you know, like rate and term um, with regard to the loans? What's, what's your thought, Ryan? Yeah, I know. I, I think you're exactly right. If we look at this and say student debt, 6.9%, we know in the open market, he can go and, and get a lower rate. I'm a little worried about his cash flow. Yeah. If we're looking at it and he's got really 900 bucks left over, in all honesty, if your number one goal is to pay off those loans, I think you're going to have to reevaluate your cash flow. Now, maybe Jenny's helping him. Maybe she's not. We're not exactly sure. But for the data that we have, you're going to really need to lower your other fixed expenses. Maybe that means renting a cheaper place or something, because if we refinance that debt and start to try to pay that off, he's going to have almost a thousand bucks that he's going to have to come up with from somewhere in order to pay that down. And then it's still even at 10 years. So unless he can increase his income, which may or may not be the case, we don't know. The only other option is to lower your expenses because that's going to increase it. As I look at some other stuff, you know, he's got 5K in savings and I'm a big fan of emergency fund. I think everyone, if you're even in a solid career and a great job, you need to have at least three months of your expenses. If you lower your expenses, obviously that means lower the amount that you need to have an emergency fund. So based on what he's spending, which is about 5,000 a month, he'd have to have 15,000 in the emergency fund. That makes it tough when you're sitting with 5K at credit card debt that you still haven't paid down. So I'd honestly be looking at, you know, maybe shaving some of that savings account and starting to pay down that credit card debt and the extra 300 that goes unallocated, I'd toss at the credit card debt, the 300 that he's been putting in the emergency fund, I'd be tossing that in just to eliminate this credit card debt because having an emergency fund is great and I definitely think it's needed paying 22% a year. That's almost soul crushing interest rate. Well, let me ask you that, Ryan. Like, so if you look at his balance sheet, like he has eight thousand in check-in and five thousand yep. savings. Would you look at this case and say, "Hey, man, just take what you have in savings and completely just wipe the credit card debt off the books"? When I see more money than what is basically going out every month in check-in, I kind of gear to basically spend down your check-in almost to zero, and then when you get repaid, it's replenished, and then everything else will go either to the Roth or the emergency funds. We know his expenses, fixed expenses, and their variable expenses are you know right around five thousand. To me, that's where less the the check-in should basically sit at more or less. So if we use that case, he would move three thousand over from the eight thousand dollars in check-in over to savings. So now he'd have five thousand in check-in, eight thousand in savings, and then I would almost say wipe the slate clean on the credit card debt. You'd have three thousand dollars now. Most emergencies, especially for a single guy. $3,000 is probably going to cover most emergencies outside yeah. of like, hey, you lose your job, that type of thing. But then just build it from there. So if the number is 15000 for the emergency fund, you know, worth $3,000 you know, and $15,000, but at least we're not paying that predatory interest amount. 
What's your take on that? What do you? Yeah, think? I I like the thought process, but I I actually wouldn't recommend that. I I like to keep one to one and a half months in a checking account, spend it down for the most part, but have a little bit of buffer there. Mm-hmm. But the reason why I wouldn't tell him to just take all five thousand and toss it in is because he has no short term disability and he has a hundred and eighty day elimination period for long term. Yeah. So if he is short term to say which most of the disability claims are actually short term, but he has not a ninety day. He's got a hundred and eighty day elimination period. So I like to have at least something there in his savings. So my thinking on this is, hey, take maybe 3000 of the savings and toss it at the credit card debt. Then you got $600 a month. So what is that, like three to four months? And he can basically squash it all while he still has 2K left if something did happen. But I think as we're talking through this, the more I actually don't like what he's currently spending in terms of fixed and variable and I typically say like 50% or less of fixed expenses uh, of your take home pay should be fixed. 25% or less should be variable. He actually hits those two. But if paying off debt is his number one thing, then there's some things inside of his fixed or variable that are his number one that are actually taking priority over his debt. And if we refinance it and, and lower his interest and allow him to do this, he's going to have somewhere where he sacrifices something if truly paying off debt is his number one issue. I mean, he has to turn the Roth off, right? Like for now, I'm a big proponent of the things that are certain in life, death, taxes. And I think if you have a match, you get your match from your retirement plan. So I probably would keep going with the match, but I would look at his Roth IRA that he's funding and say, hey, until your credit card debt is gone and your emergency fund is good to go, especially in the, you know, like what you mentioned with the short-term disability, you're kind of, you're operating really without a safety net here. So I probably would say, don't worry about the Roth. Like we'll get there, you know, let's work on the foundation here and really plus up the cash reserves. Because in reality, if, if we're looking at him as a single case, he probably needs six months, you know, because we really don't know what Ginny's bringing to the table. So he probably needs a six months of emergency fund and we're far cry away from that. Yeah, I'd, I'd push back on him though and, and getting rid of the Roth and say, are there $300 worth of expenses somewhere that you can cut that would allow you to still put money in the Roth? Well, and I think too, I mean, I think the way I would approach it is what's one shift? What's one extra moonlight shift? You know, what does that get you? And again, keeping your goals in mind, if you can do two or three of those a month, does that make up the shortfall? So yeah, again, absolutely. Like I, I, increasing that income or decreasing yeah, exactly. that expense. So if I'm going to, I'm going to harp on the expense cause I don't know his income side, Yeah. but if he could turn around and say, Hey, I could do three shifts and pull $900 more. Well, then he could stood, you know, actually accelerate that maybe his three extra shifts are to get him, you know, some of that extra variable or fixed expense that yeah. uh, he would otherwise be sacrificing. I see this with a lot of clients and we kind of get stuck in that. I want to say nine to five, but with healthcare professionals, it's a little bit different, but we kind of get stuck in our fixed schedule. But there's there's a lot of different ways that you can make money, whether it's moonlighting or even some, you know, passive income stream. So it's, a, it's I think it's a good exercise to, you know, test yourself. I challenge my clients to say, what are some other ways that you can make additional income, especially if you have big, hairy, audacious goals, like paying off the debt as soon as possible or retiring at a certain age, you got to do it. So you know, and, and if we look at this as in phases, obviously the, the student debt is a big thing. I would probably advise them to, to stay in repay until we get the credit card and the emergency fund kind of situated. And then let's go out and look at, hey, can we can we get a 10-year term at, you know, 6% at five, five and three quarters and, you know, be a little bit more aggressive on that. And then before, before we tackle that, I think all the foundational stuff needs to be in place. It's funny you mentioned that because we are, we're treating this at face value, right? What is goals and what yeah. he listed. 
But I would actually, if, if we're in a client meeting, I would really be kind of pushing back a little bit on the order of the goals. Now, I don't tell people what to spend, what to cut back on, what their goals should be. Um, you know, I'm really kind of giving them an, the ability to, to talk through that. But I'm going to guess number two in, in his number two goal, which for those listening are um, to get engaged to, to Jenny in the next year or so. And he needs to plan to buy a ring. I highly doubt that his student debt is going to take a priority over buying a ring. So my thinking is don't refinance just yet. Let's get the credit card first gone. But yeah. how the heck are you going to buy the ring if you're either not pulling in more more shifts, cutting back somewhere, if you were to take on that extra 900 or 1000 bucks in student debt payment? So say you're going to buy a $7,000 ring, maybe for the next seven months, you take a couple extra shifts, you try to cut a little extra income, you save money for the ring, then you refinance, right? Now we're kind of buying musical chairs a little bit here. Yes, you did incur extra interest, but not so much that it's like, again, soul crushing. But now you've bought, you know, be able to buy the ring. And if things didn't work out with Jenny, which I hope isn't the case, you have an emergency fund or, or something like that. But, you know, if assuming things are on course, everything's looking great with Jenny, you decide that you're going to propose, like you're not putting this on credit now. Like you actually had that paid for in cash. Yeah. And I think that's, it's a good point. And I think when I go through like a major purchase review, so, you know, the question I would ask is like, between now and the next five or seven years, what are, what are some things that we're, we're looking at that we probably need to set aside a bucket of money? And obviously in Ted's case, it's, you know, a ring. So I'd actually ask him, you know, what kind of, what's the target price? You know, what, you know, obviously the timeline in the house, you know, what's the target price? What's the timeline? And again, it's just sometimes, you know, with major purchase, I don't know how you do it, Ryan, but like, my job, I think, in essence, to select the bucket that the money will go into. So sometimes it's going to be as simple as a, a high yield savings account that I want him to label engagement ring Absolutely. or home purchase. I think the label of that is important. Sometimes it might be like a like a taxable account because we have a little bit more runway and maybe we want to take a little bit more um, risk. But I think I think ultimately it's you know setting up those buckets ready to receive funds. Maybe he'll recognize that like home purchase and three to five. We're going to set it up. But maybe it's going to be, you know, more like four to six, you know, just because of the conversations we have and pushing back on purchase price and everything like that. So yeah, well, I think I, it goes I, into priorities, though. Like if yeah. if he really wants in three to five, is that more important than saving for a wedding in the next right. few years, which is what they wrote out in the next two to three years? Because now you've got a big wedding and, you know, even though they say small, like good luck, right? You've got a wedding and then you've got. Um, don't laugh, man. You're, you're, I think you're getting close. So I'm, I'm a little heady on this one. I don't think that it, it's it, how it works, but you know, you've got, you know, two to three years, they're going to have a wedding. He's got a year or so that he's got to buy the ring and then three to five years, they want to buy the house. If the house is going to take priority over something or, you know, purchase price or wherever it may be, because I know Philly's not cheap that he might move back in is, is income going to drastically change there? Can income change in the short term, right? He can moonlight a few, but you know, and, and then there's other things, right? That they want to go see some national parks and, and I don't want to gloss over it too much, but just to quickly talk on like retire at a decent age, that can mean anything, right? Yeah. But let's just say that it's 60, right? And he wants to retire at 60. You know, we've got 30 years of earning potential. We really need to make sure that we get this really strong financial foundation in place I'd say it's going to take him six to 12 months to really iron out some of this stuff. And then he's set up for the next 29 years. He's going to have a plan of what he's putting away. But if you don't have a debt repayment plan, 
that makes sense and you're not saving for a couple of these big things that are going to come up in cash, that might not allow him to actually retire at a decent age. So while it's his fifth goal, I think you always have to be keeping that in mind with some of the things you're putting in place now. Yeah, I think it's true. I mean, so much like, you know, focus on the foundation. We're building a house here. And and I often, oftentimes I see this with clients where they'll, you know, they have maybe like a Robinhood account or something like that. And, and you know, they haven't, you know, they're funding that, but they don't really have a, a fully funded emergency fund or, or whatever. So I think, you know, I think it's important to kind of do this, you know, in steps and, and in phases and, and not get too, obviously, you know, everyone knows the sooner the, the better that you start investing for retirement, the easier it is, easier it is. But, you know, Ted has a lot of runway and, and to your point, you know, 30 years or so. And, and I think once we get some of these foundational things in place, then we can really hit the ground running when it comes to some of this other best in and some of this other stuff. Yeah. You, you mentioned, you know, potentially investing and, and, and investing is sexy, Tim, right? It's, it's what everyone talks about on, on, you know, wall street journal and CNBC and Kramer's, you know, yelling bye, bye, bye and all sorts yep. of stuff. Right. So people think like, Oh, that's what I need. I need to actually beat the market and I need to invest because that's how I'm going to make it. And it's like, no, when you're first starting out, it honestly, your investment returns don't matter. What matters is your savings rate, right? Yeah. And I look at this and I was just telling a, a buddy of mine, you know, say you had a thousand bucks and you made a hundred percent return this year. Now, obviously you can't make that, I don't think, but you know, let's say, and, and definitely not into, you know, perpetuity, but you made a hundred percent return in 2019, let's say. Great. You have $2,000, right? But if you cut your expenses by $200 a month, you just save $2,500. Now, not like a genius over here, but I, that's $500 more and you only cut 200 out of your budget. Now, what you do with that, could you pay down debt? Could you actually invest it? Like, it, it doesn't even matter. Like just the pure savings. So savings rate actually means a whole lot more in the beginning. It's 29. It means so much more at this age than, than anything else. So, you know, he's got some investments. He's been trying to put some money away into his Roth, which is awesome. Like, you know, good, good for him. I know many 29 year olds would be like Roth. What? I'm not doing that. That's, that's, that's dumb. I'm not retiring for 35 years. Right. But he's, he's trying to do the, the right thing. What I would say though, concerning his investments, good job doing the match. I think free money absolutely should do the match, but go figure out what you're invested in right? He thinks it's a target date fund. You should know what it is and you should look into what that is. There's a symbol there and odds are it's, it's five, five letters, right? And it's a mutual fund. Just type those five letters in Google and Morningstar will pop up morningstar.com for that specific fund. Click in Morningstar and just understand what it is. You can click portfolio and see what it's made up of. You can click the button that says fees and you can see what you're paying. Now, that doesn't have all your fees because there's going to be fees that may be attached inside your 401k, but you can at least get an idea of like what you're invested in and do some due diligence on that piece to make sure it's invested the right way that, you know, at your risk tolerance or, you know, I, I just think that he needs to understand a little bit more about his investments. Go read a book. There's a great book by Alan Roth, How a Second Grader Beat Wall Street. It's kind of a dumb title, clickbaity maybe, but it's actually an excellent book to understand the basics of investing. Really, it actually goes into, I mean, Tim, you can figure it out, like it goes into index investing, passive investing, which we can talk about at a later time. But, you know, it's showing you just the basics of investing and how it works. I would recommend that book and I'd be diving into those investments and just understanding what that 3%, while it still is probably pretty small right now, just understand what you're investing in. Yeah. And I think, I think it's it, not to the belabor the point, but 
My view on investing, and like you kind of said, it's like the exciting thing, but my view on investing, you know, that's, I think a lot of advisors position it, is that it should be as boring as saving for an emergency fund or paying off a, a you know, a car. Or watching paint dry. Like exactly. it should be super but the, boring. But what our brethren do, not to throw anybody on the bus, but we try to make it sexier than it is and have, you know, smart beta and all this other nonsense. It just is more confusing to the investor and the client. And typically meaning, you know, it's higher fees. Well, you know so, why they do that. I mean, yeah, higher fees. It's the black box. I'm going to sell right. you, quote unquote, this this really cool thing that you're never going to understand, you know, even though half the people that they're probably pitching it to are significantly smarter than they are. But you're never going to understand this cool, new, weird thing that we're doing or this model or allocation that we're doing. It, it's ridiculous. Uh, it's absolutely. It, but you know why they do it. It's because they want to push higher fees. Right. And and it and it's you know, I was on a I was on a client meeting today, not to get too far off of, of Ted, but you know, I was on a client meeting and she's like, Yeah, you know, I was, she was a pharmacist, you know, she's like, I I've been talking to different advisors. I talked to one and it's like two, you know, two minutes into the meeting, it's like buy this insurance policy or, or of course. you know, buy this mutual fund. And I'm just like, Yeah, to to me and I was looking, you know, kind of talking through her case, it's just it's she has so much other things foundationally that she needs to focus on first. And even my co host on your financial pharmacist podcast, you know, he's a client, he's a pharmacist. He he made a comment the other day that I just didn't really even realize. He said, you know, we've been working together for a while and we really haven't really touched on investment that much because there's other things that we need to work through. And to me, the the, the investment is just one part of the financial plan, which should be equally weighted amongst all this other stuff. So it's one piece uh, of the pie, right? But yep. but other advisors, when you say like, hey, you you know, two minutes in, you need to buy insurance. Like I always get the the SNL scam. I think you know what this needs? It needs more cowbell. Yeah. Like, and that's like <laughs> all they can say, right? Because that's how they it, you can't yeah. fault them right? For, for pitching this stuff and to tell you, Hey, you need to buy this because that's how they make their money. I sell you a, you know, a 10 pay whole life for a million bucks, Tim, I make 15 grand. You, I mean, you know, obviously I don't sell it, but that's, that's what they're doing. So it's, it's hard to turn down 15 grand for having someone do a stroke of a pen and paying a couple thousand a month into this quote unquote investment. Yeah. you, You almost can't blame them. Like if people are willing to do this, but do your due diligence, understand that this probably is not the right thing for you, but understand where the conflicts exist, right? Just, just, you got to understand the conflicts. Yep, absolutely. But uh, yeah, so Ryan, I think good work taking a look at Ted's case. So I think, you know, foundationally, I think there's some work left to be done and and then we can kind of get into some of these other areas of the financial plans. So yeah, you know, awesome work. If you guys are interested in in maybe having your financial assessment done on air, drop us a line in the Facebook group at Money Care Specialists and we'd love to maybe potentially highlight it. It'll all be anonymous. We're never going to blast anyone. But if you have a specific situation, even on one piece that, you know, maybe we can weave into someone's assessment, we'd love to hear it. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you guys next time. I think it's great that you decided to join in on the show and I'm internally grateful, you know, because this podcast is about cash flow, budgets, financial goals, investments, and really all things money and details making those things worth pursuing in real life. While these types of topics aren't the sexiest, you're here and that's what matters. And I'm working really hard to deliver great information in the podcast, but here's the catch. I don't know anything about you, or what your financial needs are. So consult your attorney, your CPA, or reach out to me, a fee-only financial planner, before taking any action or making decisions affecting your hard-earned money. 
In just a few days, we have a great show planned with a special guest, Scott Trench, the president of Bigger Pockets. Scott talks to me about the principles of his book, Set for Life, and achieving financial independence. And we place a really big emphasis on reviewing the four pillars for physicians to build wealth. This definitely will not be one that you want to miss. Until next time, cheers. This podcast is like a marriage. You get out of it what you put in. So if you show up and put in the time to learn about the financial topics most affecting you, you'll more than likely grow in your financial savviness. But here's the thing. What you hear in this show is to be taken with a generic stride. It's a blanket adaptation of different financial topics affecting physician families. I can't guarantee any specific advice because I don't know who you are or what financial challenges you may be facing. I'd recommend consulting an attorney, a CPA, or me, a fee-only financial planner to help you with any of those questions.